Well, good morning, church. That was Brad, who just got baptized a moment ago, beginning new life with Jesus. Yeah, man, love to celebrate that. Nothing better than that around here. Hey, I have three kids, and from time to time, each one of those kids will brag that they are the favorite child. You know, sometimes you hear, well, I'm dad's favorite. Well, I'm mom's favorite. I'm mom and dad's favorite. And the reality is, Jen and I don't really play favorites. Or do we? No, I'm just kidding. We don't. We don't have favorites. But Jen and I will also joke that we're the favorite parent, right, of each kid. We'll kind of mess with that, put it back on them. And we have fun joking around, but we know there's not a favorite parent. If there were, it'd be me, but there's not. So we'll just let that go. But it makes one wonder, and maybe you've wondered this, if God plays favorites. Does God play favorites? Well, the answer to that question is yes. God does play favorites. And I know to hear me say that, some of you are really bothered at this moment. You're like, oh, I knew it. That's why I don't trust God, because he plays favorites, and it's obvious I ain't one of them. And so you just like, man... And other years, you're like, whoa, no, 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 whoa, whoa, fits. Dangerous territory. God doesn't play favorites. God loves everyone. It's true. God does love everyone. But God also has favorites. So hold on to that, because we're going to come back to that idea in a minute. But this week, we are in week four of our series, A New Year, A New Beginning. And we're taking a look at the beginning of Jesus' life to see what his life holds for our lives, what truths from his life speak into our lives. And it's part of our bigger year-long pursuit called 52, The Pursuit of Jesus. And we are using Mark Moore's book, Quest 52. It's a 15-minute daily devotional. We're using that as our guide through this series. So because we're in week four today, that means this week you should read week four in your Quest 52 book. And if you don't yet have the book, you're newer to us or you're coming back after a little break, you can pick up your copy, you can purchase your copy in the lobby today right after service. You can get a few on discount for your friends and share with them. I've loved hearing all the stories of so many of you who are sharing that book and entering into conversations with others. Keep it going, keep those stories coming. I love hearing that, so proud of you. But today we're continuing to take a look at the birth narrative of Jesus. We'll be looking mostly in Luke chapter 2. And this is the Christmas story, but I want to take it a little bit different than we might at Christmas time. I'm going to look at just four characters in this narrative to see what they might tell us about that question, does God play favorites? And the first is Caesar Augustus. We're introduced to him in Luke chapter 2 verse 1. At that time, the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. Now, I think we got a picture of good old Caesar Augustus, and there he is. He was the, the emperor of the Roman Empire at the time Jesus was born, and he was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar. And you might remember Julius Caesar from high school. You had to read the play, read Shakespeare. Shakespeare got it kind of right, but anybody remember that one? Yeah, yeah, sorry, that's like bringing back some PTSD for some of you there. But Julius Caesar was assassinated, and then his nephew Octavian, who changed his name to Augustus, became the next Caesar, the next emperor. And one of the first things Caesar Augustus did when he took the throne was to get his buddy Mark Antony, and together they went and they offed all the guys who assassinated Julius Caesar. What a way to begin your reign. Let's go slaughter some people. But that's exactly what they did. 
And Augustus became Rome's greatest king emperor. He wrote a book about himself, kind of like our famous people in America will write their memoirs, how our presidents, when they leave the, the office, they'll write memoirs of themselves. Well, Augustus Caesar wrote a memoir, wrote a book called The Acts of Augustus. And in it, he bragged about a lot of his accomplishments, but many of those braggings were about his censuses that he took. And one of those censuses determined where Jesus would be born. Now, some of the things that Augustus had said about himself that he said and that he wanted other people to say, things like he was called the one who is to come, the divine king of salvation to whom mankind has awaited. And he wrote about himself and he made sure other people spoke about him using these terms, that he is the prince of peace, the king of all kings, the savior of the world. Even their coinage described him as the son of God. Those are pretty bold claims for a person to make, especially if you can't back it up on the backside. And so when Luke writes his gospel, his story of Jesus' life, and he uses these same descriptors to describe Jesus, we see exactly what Luke is doing. He's letting us know that Augustus is not the only king in this story of Jesus. In fact, there's only one king who really, truly fulfilled all those. It was not Caesar Augustus, it was Jesus the Messiah. But there's also another king included in this story, Herod the Great. And I think we got a picture of him. Well, kind of. (laughs) Augustus appointed local kings to serve over different areas of the empire. And Herod was a friend of Augustus, so he was appointed the king over the region of the Jewish people. And he was called Herod the Great because he was a great builder. Pardon me. He rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. He built elaborate port cities. He built elaborate palaces all over the empire. And he built a a great fortress at Masada. One of his favorite, most elaborate palaces was called Herodium. And he built and he did all this stuff. But when Herod's dad died, he became king. Now, Herod was a great builder. He was a great military strategist. He was brilliant, but he was also ruthless. And so when he became king, he threw a party. And he had all the men who had been loyal to his father invited. All these men showed up. And then he killed them all. Kind of a common theme, right? Caesar Augustus becomes emperor, kills a bunch of people. Herod the Great becomes king kills a bunch of people. Herod had 10 wives, and with those wives, he had 43 children. And out of those wives, his favorite wife was a woman named Miriam. But when he grew suspicious that Miriam was trying to plot to have her son take the throne, he had Miriam killed. He also had the son killed. And just for some added protection, he had Miriam's mom, his mother-in-law, executed. Now, I've got a great relationship with my mother-in-law, but I've heard stories. Some of you might be able to associate with Herod on that one. Maybe that had less to do with the empire and more to do with just the inner family relationship. But Herod had several of his own sons killed because he saw them as threats to his rule, threats to his title. And the man lived in incredible luxury. He built beautiful palaces all over Palestine and the money for all those palaces, where do you think it came from? Where does any of the government's money come from? (laughs) That's right, taxes. 
People like Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents, would be taxed at times up to rates of 80 to 90%. So in a month or so when you're filing your taxes, just remember, it could be much worse. <laughs> it doesn't always feel that way, but it could be worse. But Herod was a tyrant who oppressed the people under his rule. Matthew tells us this. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem. Now, wise men doesn't fully capture who these men were. They weren't just really intelligent men from a distant land. They were kings. They were dignitaries. They were rulers. And so this entourage of kingly men came from these eastern lands. And they had said to Herod, next slide, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his stars at rose, and we have come to worship him. Well, at hearing this, King Herod, next slide, was deeply disturbed. And when he heard this, he was disturbed, and everyone in Jerusalem with him. Now, why were all those people in Jerusalem disturbed by this news? Because they knew what Herod was capable of when he felt threatened. And why was Herod threatened? Well, at that time, he was about 70 years old, which at that time was really old. It was well past the age of most people's life expectancy. But he was dying of kidney disease. And so he was trying to consolidate all his power. And then he hears from these Eastern dignitaries who came to pay homage to a baby king. He hears of a competing king. So for him, he's feeling threatened. This baby king, this child king, this infant king could destroy his dynasty could ruin his legacy. And so you remember what happens in that story. Herod has children slaughtered. He has all these young baby boys killed to alleviate the threat. What a guy, right? So you've got the Caesars and the Herods. But then on the other end of the spectrum, you have people like Mary and Joseph. Now, we took a look at Mary and Joseph last week, but want to revisit their situation briefly again today. Joseph was a carpenter, and carpenters back then didn't just work with wood. They were builders. They were tradesmen in all those building trades, so they would also be stonemasons. And at that time, they would build everything from roads and walls and fences to homes, you name it. And because work was uncertain, you never knew when the next job was going to come, if there was another job offered, they would take it and they would work multiple jobs at the same time because there was so much economic uncertainty for them. In terms of the economy, you have this picture where the elites were the top 2% of the people. The Herods, the Caesars, they were at the top of the chain. But just under them, you had about 5% of the population who were well-educated, doctors and teachers and lawyers and such. Kind of reminds me of an old Willie Nelson song. Don't let them grow up to drive them old trucks, right? But you had the educated, well-off people. And if you could tie yourself to the wealthy, you then were wealthy and you were safe. You were in a good spot. So this top 7% of the population is doing quite well. But about 98% of the money was owned by about 2% of the people. Then you have the bottom 15%, the expendables. And we talk expendables, we're not talking Sylvester Stallone and his action hero guys from the 80s and 90s. We're, we're talking the people of that time who would be disregarded. The homeless, the prostitutes, the beggars, the destitute. 
with two other categories included in the expendables, really let us know the kind of society that was created by those at the top. Because also in that expendable list would be the elderly and the disabled. But then in the middle, most people fell into this day laborer. People like Joseph, who were working trades. People who would make baskets and make clothing and sell food. They were eking out a living, living day to day, living hand to mouth. No real savings, no real promise of the future, not a great way of living. And on their backs was made the empire for the elites. Now we learn a little bit about the situation for some of them. Leviticus gave religious requirements for what would happen when a woman had a child and then he would offer the sacrifice for that child. When we go back to Leviticus, and this predates this Roman Empire by, you know, a thousand years. So you have Leviticus. When the time of purification is completed for either a son or a daughter, the woman must bring a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a purification offering. If a woman can't afford to bring a lamb, she must bring two doves or a couple pigeons. So when Mary and Joseph gave birth to Jesus, and they took Jesus for the purification offering. Listen to what it says about what they offered. They offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord. That's referring to that passage in Leviticus. Either a pair of doves or a pair of pigeons. Notice the third animal that's not included there. The lamb. Because the lambs were much more expensive. There were people who would make their place selling some of those day laborers, would sell the pigeons and would sell the doves and would sell the lambs right there at the temple. So when people came to make the sacrifice, they didn't have to bring the animals with them. They could purchase these animals there and then make the sacrifice. But when Mary and Joseph showed up, Mary and Joseph, who were the parents of the very son of God, the son of God who was the lamb of God, the lamb slain for the sins of all of us, They couldn't even afford a lamb for the lamb of God. They had to purchase the cheaper sacrifice, a couple pigeons or a couple doves, because they couldn't afford the lamb. Now, the lamb belonged to those higher up on that pyramid. And so it's ironic that Mary and Joseph couldn't even purchase a lamb for the lamb of God's sacrifice. Well, as we talk about lamb, sheep, We think of the shepherds, and the shepherds worked with animals, and they were considered unclean because they were working with animals, and those animals were unclean. They were stinky. They were nasty. It was a dirty job, but these shepherds in the Christmas story, if you're familiar with the Christmas story, the shepherds tending the flocks out in the fields at night, they were most likely tending to the animals that would be used at the temple, sold at the temple for sacrifice. So you have another irony here, where these are the men who are tending the lamb that will be sold at the temple for the most expensive sacrifice, yet these men themselves, because they're unclean, because they tend the animals, could not even go into the temple. So the animals they raise are used as the best sacrifice in the temple, but these men weren't even allowed into the temple. What irony there. And even though the role of shepherd was celebrated in the Jewish culture metaphorically for leadership as someone who would take care of others, practically, literally, the shepherds of that time, 
No, they were disregarded. They were outcasts, both socially and spiritually. So the shepherds were at the bottom of the day laborer pyramid, right? They're down here. And the shepherds in the Christmas story, because they're tending the flocks at night, aren't even as high as the other shepherds. These would likely be hired men, hired by the shepherds to do the night shift. So these guys are like right here on this line. They are a step above expendable. It's interesting to see all this because even though the shepherds were not highly regarded at the time, one of God's favorite metaphors for himself throughout scripture is shepherd. I'm thinking of the favorite 23rd Psalm. Psalm 23 tells us, the Lord is my what? Shepherd. In fact, read that with me. The Lord is my shepherd. It's just a sense of peace that comes with that. Knowing that the shepherd protects, provides, leads, guides, defends his sheep. And then Jesus personified that imagery. John tells us, John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And if you're familiar with that passage, you know what Jesus went on to say. My sheep know me, I know them, they know my voice. I watch over them. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He's the good shepherd. So back to our question. Does God play favorites? Well, it's hard to see all the people with wealth and power, prestige, possessions, a seemingly easy life than to think that God doesn't play some kind of favorite. If you lived in the first century and you saw the Herods, you saw the Caesars, you saw their power, their wealth, their influence, all that they had, their palaces, not just one, but palaces all over. And you were eking out a living from hand to mouth, day to day, just trying to survive. It'd be hard to think that, no, God doesn't play favorites. You would think that they somehow had the favor of God. Maybe it's not too different for us as we look around the world. Those people who have it all, maybe did they somehow get favor beyond us? Forbes magazine prints out a list every year of the world's most influential and powerful people. Last year, they wrote this. There are 7.4 billion people on planet Earth, but these 74 people are the ones who make the world turn. These 74 men and women. In case you're interested, I was nowhere close to making that list. (laughs) Not even close. And I'm guessing you weren't either, so welcome to the club. But... The way Forbes assesses that, say rank people based on four different criteria. One, does a person have power over many other people? Do they have financial resources that they control? Not just they have the resources, but they control financial resources. Do they have influence in multiple spheres? And four, how actively do they use their power? So if Forbes is published in the year Jesus is born, what are they gonna say about Caesar Augustus? What are they gonna say about Herod? Do those men have power? Oh, yeah. Ridiculous amounts. How about finances? Well, they were loaded. They bought and built whatever they wanted because they were loaded up from the taxes from all the other people. How about influence? Well, they controlled the military, the economy, transportation, roadways, ports, the seas. They controlled it all. And how did they use that power? To kill and oppress anyone who threatened their power, their livelihood their position. Well, how about Mary and Joseph? What would Forbes say of them? 
Well, maybe if there were a list of the world's least important people, that's where we're going to find Mary and Joseph. How about the shepherds? Yeah, nothing in their resume to get them noticed. But yet, who does God favor? If you remember last week, we talked about Mary. And when the angel appears to Mary and tells her she's going to be the mother of the Messiah, he reassures her with this statement, you have found favor with God. You found favor with God. He says it more than once to her. When the angels appear to the shepherds, those hired hands out in the evening tending the sheep, you remember what the angels told them? Luke records it for us. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born, and don't miss these next two words, to you today in Bethlehem in the city of David. Not the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord has been born to the elites. He's been born to the Caesars. He's been born to the Herods. He's been born to the wealthy. He's been born to the educated. He's been born to those who have it all together. No, he's been born to you, the expendables. Those at the bottom of the list. The Savior is born to you. What a beautiful picture we have here. So who does God favor? He favors the Marys. He favors the Josephs. He favors the shepherds, the lowly, the least, the last, the lost, the left outs. And there's one criterion that is sure to get you on the list of God's favorites. A humble spirit. See, humility opens the door to God's favor in your life. It's not power, wealth, possession, education, any of that. It's a humble spirit before God and before others. Jesus' friend Peter later writes this to the early church. He says, all of you, dress yourselves in humility as you relate to one another. Be humble towards one another. Don't oppress one another. Don't abuse one another. Don't take advantage of one another. But treat one another with humility. The idea in that Greek culture that Peter was getting at was this is a way of you lift other people up to serve them. You don't make them your servant. You become theirs. No matter who you are and what you have, serve one another. Be humble towards one another. And why? Because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And he goes on. So because of that, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, humble yourselves not just to one another, but humble yourselves under the mighty power of God, acknowledging that he is God and you are not. And then in due time, he will lift you up with honor. See, friend, when we come before God and we humbly say, God, I need your help. God, I have made a mess of things, and I can't fix it, but I know you can. God, I have made a mess of my marriage, and I need you to heal it. God, I've made a mess with my kids, and I need you to restore that bond. God, I've made a mess at work. I've made a mess with my money. I've made a mess with my addiction. You just name the mess, and guess what? Everybody in here has got a mess. We've got multiple messes. There's not a person in this room who didn't come with some mess. We're all a bit messed up. Welcome to the club. And when we come to God, yeah, I don't know if we celebrate that, but we got that, right? We can just celebrate that it's true and that we aren't alone in it, right? So when we come to God and we acknowledge that he is God and we are not and we need him, then we open the door to his favor in our life. So who does God favor? What does favorite look like? Does God even play favorites? Oh, he does. But it might look different than what you think. Because being smart or wealthy or well-to-do, educated, powerful, being the influencer, 
Or you might look like you got it all. Those people might seem like they have it all, but the thing they might not have is the favor of God. See, the only thing that gets you on the list is humility. In God's school of life, the coursework is not economics, it's meconomics. Jesus told us, come to me, follow me, because I am meek and gentle. It's all about humbling ourselves to serve one another, serving them with what we have and what we do. It's about meekness. And when you humble yourself before God and you join him in his mission, then you open the door for God's favor in your life. And what that means is that all the Caesars and the Herods and the power brokers of this world, those who leverage their money and their influence to take advantage of others and get a better spot for themselves, those who push other people down to lift themselves up, those who use their power for their own self-advancement and for their own self-possessions and all that, they might look like they've got stuff, but they don't have the power of God. And maybe it doesn't seem fair. Maybe it doesn't seem fair that there are people who seem to have it all and seem to have it so easy. But here's the reality. It's not fair. Friend, you need to hear this. God is not fair. He's not. He is gracious. And that's good. Because we don't want fair. Fair means we're treated as we deserve. We get what we deserve. Fair means... We pay for our sins, and it means there's hell to pay. I don't want fair. You don't want fair. You want grace. We want mercy. And the good news is, that's exactly what God gives us because it's exactly who he is, the God of grace and mercy. And God wants us, as we receive his grace, to then be grace givers. When God gives us gifts, it's not just for us, but it's so that we can be funnels of those gifts to other people. Every single one of us, and this is gonna sound crazy to some of you, but every single one of us has the money, the power, the influence to put ourselves towards the top of that list in the world today. The top of the pyramid, we have the, we have the goods. Now, when we compare ourselves to the Elon Musks and the Bill Gates, it does not seem that way. But when we look at the multitudes and poverty around the world, we are. So the question is not how do we get more? The question is not do we have enough? The question is what will we do with what we have? How will we use it? How will we use it? See, the gifts God gives us are to be given away. I love how Mark Moore points out in his book, you'll read it this week, that every injustice in the world is not due to a resource issue. It's not that there's not enough stuff. It's a distribution problem, that the stuff isn't making it where it needs to go. There are more homes, empty homes, than there are homeless people. There is more food thrown away. There's more food wasted than what's needed to feed the starving people. There is more money than there is medical debt. The list could go on and on. You name the injustice, the resources are there. So the question is, what will we do with what we have? Will we be like the Herods and the Caesars, leveraging what we have for ourselves and our own advancement to build our kingdoms? Or will we surrender what we have to build his kingdom? Will we use it to build the kingdom of God? So being favored by God isn't about getting the privilege it's about accepting the responsibility of the gospel. 
It's not about having a good life, it's about sharing the good news. And when the shepherds received the gift of seeing the Savior, they couldn't help but share that gift. Luke records it for us. After seeing him, the shepherds told whom? Everyone. They told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. The Savior, the Lord, has been born to you. Listen, these guys, these guys were not highly regarded by anyone. They had favor from no one, yet they told everyone. Everyone. They ran through the city. They ran through the village. They went and told everyone. The people who didn't even regard them, they said, listen, you got to know the Savior's been born to you, to you, to you, to you. He's here for us. And that's the best news we've got. That's the best thing we can share. We've got to share it. Church, it is incumbent upon us. We are responsible to do as the shepherds did, to tell everyone about the good news that brings great joy, that a Savior has been born to you. You know, we kicked off this year, and I challenged us to think about who our one is, each one of us. Because if we're going to reach everyone with the gospel, then that means each one of us must reach someone. Who's your one? Who's the one that you will get down on your knees and humble yourselves to, to beg heaven for their salvation day in and day out? Who's the one who you'll plead to God for to show his favor to them? Who's the one who you'll ask God, just give me the courage and give me the winsomeness to let them see you in me? Who's your one? Are you willing to chase them? Are you willing to do whatever it takes to surrender so that they might come to know Jesus? See, that's the greatest blessing we can share. But church, let me tell you this. If we share the good news, but we don't share what we have, then our gospel has no teeth. We can tell people about Jesus all day long, but if they don't see it, if they don't see us loving them, if they don't see us surrendering all that we have for their good, they don't care what we have to say because it just won't ring true. The gospel must be visible in us, not just audible from us. So I wanna invite all of us to remember, to remember the good news that came to us first shared by those shepherds that we are to surrender to Jesus, the only one who surrendered it all for us to show us how favored we are by him. See, friend, a savior has been born to you. It's personal. It's individual. God knows your name. God knows your needs. He knows your hurts. He knows your struggles. He knows your temptations. He knows your trials. And what you need to know is that he puts favor upon you because he loves you and he's for you and not against you. And he is the only one who can help you, who can heal you. He's the only one who can give you true hope and a bright new future forever with him. He took a cross so that you could walk the streets of glory forever with him. And friend, in just a moment, Mark and Danny are gonna sing a song for us and I invite us, I encourage us as they do, that we simply listen, not to sing along with, but listen and absorb and reflect. Reflect upon the message of the song, reflect upon what you've heard from God's word today. And allow this song to become your prayer, to become your reminder that we all need Jesus. 
And, and I invite you, if you know that you've made a mess of things and you need help and you're crying out to God, you don't have to cry out alone. As these guys do this song for us and we listen in, I'm gonna be right over there in front of the baptistry with a couple elders. We'll have some elders over on this side by the cross and we would love to pray for you. And if you are ready to surrender it all to Jesus and say, you are king, you are savior, you are God and I am not. If you're ready to say, God, I'm tired of trying to play your role. I've tried to be God and I'm pretty terrible at it. You're ready to surrender yourself to him, to take that step towards him and say, God, I need you. I need you. We would love to help you take your next step with Jesus. And if you're joining us online, well, it's gonna be kind of hard for you to get to the cross or the baptistry. But you just let that person, you let your host know, I'm ready to follow Jesus. You just let them know I need prayer. You can put it in the chat space. You can send a direct message. I'll tell you what, we would love to pray for you. We would love to encourage you as well. So while these guys sing, let this song be our prayer. And if you need prayer, meet us right down here.